Hello, and welcome to the Rogue Creators Podcast. I am your host, Alex Black, and in this podcast, I hope to interview a lot of very interesting people from all sorts of different walks of life, mostly centered around the Rogue Valley. In this first episode, I'm going to be interviewing my father, Craig Black, who is the founder of Blackstone Publishing, originally known as Blackstone Audio until recently. He is not only a successful entrepreneur, but he's also a very inspiring person. So it is my great honor and privilege to be able to interview my father, Craig Black, in this episode. I hope that you enjoy. I feel like we should maybe just start with um, your sort of background story about uh, how you came to how you came to create Blackstone, what you, led you to that uh, idea, and kind of the work uh, that you did previously that that kind of led to that. Yeah. Okay. Well, when I was in my thirties, I had the good fortune to work uh, for a company that was owned by Tenneco. Tenneco at the time was the 16th largest company in the world. Mm -hmm. And they had a division in Bakersfield, California called Tenneco West. And they owned a whole bunch of farmland and they did uh, uh, development work as well. But they had this brand called House of Almonds. So I had... uh, the good fortune of getting selected to conceptualize that into a retail store concept, take this little, you know, the little flavored almonds like Blue Diamond yeah. and put it into re- retail store concept. Did that, and we ended up with about 104 of those stores, and then we bought another company called Moro's. Anyway, that was wonderful and all, but it wasn't really what I wanted to do because my grandfather was an entrepreneur Mm. and he owned a machine shop that manufactured airplane parts in Gardena, California. And even though I worked there for a while, I was, I was their uh, full-time floor sweeper, you might say. (laughs) Exciting. (laughs) Yeah. Very exciting. So I, I was familiar with that business and I could have been given that business to take over at some point in time, but I had no interest in it. Yeah. And it just the, the whole environment was not my thing. Sure. But I did see the freedom that my grandfather had, yeah. you know, and making his own decisions and kind of plotting his own course. Yeah. And I found that to be very attractive. Yeah. So I always said, someday I think I want to do my own business. That makes sense. And uh, what would you say is like the catalyst that, that ended up sort of well, causing that yeah, situation that's, that's to interesting. unfold. Uh, we, when I, after getting married to your mom, mm. um, <clears throat> we, we were very anxious to start our family someplace else yeah. other than Southern California. And they thought that would require a move, obviously, that would take me out of the, business I was in, the job I was in, and we were excited about that. So we started thinking about businesses, and we came up with three ideas. One was 
there was a big craze towards cinnamon rolls back then. So one of them was to start a cinnamon roll shop. And another one was, because of my contacts with, with shopping malls, Across America, that was my part of my job is was finding new locations for this House of Almonds company. Um, I had a, a relationship with the people at Alamoana Mall in Hawaii, and they you could you could sell anything at that place if you got a space in that mall, you would make it. So we were that was tempting, and so we were thinking about doing a made in Hawaii type store. Um, but then the, the thing is at the time I was really getting hooked on audiobooks there weren't a lot available but there was a company called books on tape and there was a second company called recorded books that had been doing some I think recorded books had about 200 titles and how, how did you discover uh, oh, those audiobooks well, yeah, okay, <laughs> in those that's, days that's a good that's a that's a good question um, I started, I was on this self-help kick. I, I didn't do very much in college, let's put it that way. I went to college to play baseball, and when I quit the baseball team, I quit college the next day. Uh, but after I became a Christian at age 22, my interests changed, and all of a sudden I had this, I, don't, I didn't even, it just came on pretty suddenly where I had an interest in making up for the time that I had lost educationally. And so I started spending a lot of time reading. and But the problem was I didn't have that much time because I was always working and driving yep. in my car. Doesn't help to be in L.A. <clears throat> no, no. So I started trying to make use of that commute time, which was an hour and 15 minutes one way. And... I got into three fender benders. I don't want to say car accidents. They, they were, but they were more <laughs> like fender benders because I wouldn't have done this going 30 miles an hour. But if I was going five miles an hour in traffic or 10 miles an hour, I would read something. Yeah. I, I would take things to read. I even worked on budgets. I did all kinds of things. And uh, I got into I three incidents where I bumped into people and it, so it wasn't just the first one that uh made you think this is <laughs> no it was getting teased mercilessly, mercilessly by my friends and okay. and I it, it was John Jacobson my roommate who um finally said Craig I think he handed me a little corrugated box with eight tapes in it it was an audio book on cassette tapes. It was 1984 by George Orwell. Nice. And it just so happened that that was the year 1984. Wow. That is some good timing. So I listened to that book. Yeah, I went through it very quick because I had almost three hours a day on the road. And uh, I thought, oh, my goodness, everybody in the world ought to have one of these. Yeah. Ought to be listening to audiobooks, especially all these people on the freeways. So was that pretty brand new technology at that point? Uh, how how recent was the cassette out around then? I I would say it wasn't brand new as far as the cassette because because yeah. they put music on cassettes. Yeah. So if cassettes have probably been out ten years, okay. but books on tape. I'm trying to think. Eighty four. 
I think Books on Tape came around in about 1978, so they had been around for six years, yeah. <clears throat> and they had oh, they had a, a, maybe a thousand titles at yeah. the time. Um, recorded books had like 200, but the you know that's the, far from what the overall you know published oh, book set was at that point. Yeah, so. yeah. I mean, we do. What do we do this year in titles? We we probably do you know at least 1,200, I think. Oh, yeah, we do over 100 a month. Yeah. I think maybe we do 125 or so a month. It's crazy. So we do more per year. Per year than they than they had total. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it helps that the uh internet now makes it so it's so much widely more widely accessible to people and potentially cheaper, especially if you have a library card or something. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, they're very accessible. I mean, the, well, the business just took off when iPods came around. Yeah. That makes you know, sense. And, and then the digital delivery is just phenomenal. But yeah. Yeah, before you had to have books that would take up a good portion of your back to your car if you <laughs> yeah. wanted to have more than one book. Yeah. Now on my iPhone, I've got, I don't know what, 100 different titles. Yeah. And, are all and downloaded. it's probably not even taking full advantage. No, no, yeah. I, could, I could load a lot more. Yeah. 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 That's amazing. So it's um, pretty great. So then... Uh, so you got into a couple of uh, fender benders that um, started kind of oh oh and then John Jacobson gave you the audiobook and said this yep. is the answer to your problem yep you know if you want to use your time well yeah so I, I just went through so many books that year I don't know how many maybe thirty which is you, probably more than I read throughout my high school and college days <laughs> that's amazing yeah <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think anyone that uh, listens to audiobooks can attest that it's just much easier yeah, than yeah. Uh, reading, especially if you're pretty busy during the day. Right, right. And it was using the time well, you yeah. know, that, that commute time. You just felt like otherwise I felt like this is just wasted time. Absolutely. Yeah, because your other option is listening to the radio or music. And right. And that's right. not exactly productive. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. then um, the next step from there to... Uh, to getting the inspiration for the business, uh, how did how did that kind of come about? Well, I, I realized that books on tape didn't have that many titles. Yeah, uh, and I, we I started doing research at UCLA on the weekends, and you know back then you had you didn't have Google, you had to go look on microfiche <laughs> and get articles out of magazines and what have you, and I learned so I learned that there were two companies and and that they were just doing a f- small fraction of the books that were actually coming out of a year. There's yeah. like a, I don't know, if there's a 100,000 books published a year or something like that. Yeah. And maybe at the time there were, you know, 300 of those were getting put on, on cassette. Yeah. So um, I... Uh, I I just uh, I felt like wow I I could reach people, kind of what what my approach was rather than taking the approach from that I the way that I was taught at my doing my MBA in in doing market research and you know having um, uh, control groups and all that I thought well I I had read something by Peter Drucker he mm-hmm. was the great Claremont business guy. And he said, another approach is to develop a niche Mm -hmm. by going after people who with the same mindset as you. Interesting. And so I 
took that approach yeah. and decided at the time I was really excited about uh, at one of my MBA classes, my economics class, we had to read a bunch of economists. And the one that really resonated with me was Milton Friedman. So I read Free to Choose by Milton Friedman, and I was so taken by that that it he, he definitely shaped my political persuasion, mm-hmm. you know. It just seemed to make so much sense, yeah. small government and, and uh, the free market. Yeah. So... I started going after books like that. Yeah. Uh, and they kind of aligned with what you yeah, what you resonated with. Right, yeah, right. Yeah. And then also being a Christian, you know, I my my worldview was being shaped during those years by the fact that I believed in uh, original sin. Mm-hmm. You know, the fact that you believe that man is innately immoral because he was born in sin. Mm-hmm. So that shapes you where you don't have this predisposed disposition to believe that all people are good. Yeah. Um, they can become good. Of course, that's through the regeneration and all that. But anyway, that's not what we're talking about. <laughs> uh, so I, um, I also was, I started watching William F. Buckley, his weekly show called Firing Line mm-hmm. on weekends with Michelle and, and just kind of growing in that direction. So uh, Buckley had started a magazine called National Review. Yeah, I've heard of that. Yeah. And so I started taking that magazine and, and reading articles by various writers like George Gilder and Paul Johnson mm-hmm. and um, Thomas Sowell. Mm-hmm. And so I decided I'm going to go after these books. Yeah. So we started recording those type of books. Yeah. And uh, and advertising, which was so great about this this strategy is we didn't have money to advertise in the New York Times. Yeah. You know, or anything like that. But we sure. could advertise. We could take out full page ads in National Review. Yeah. And American Spectator. Mm-hmm. And then in those full page ads, we could list. Once we had like 30 books done, we could advertise all those books with a headline, you know, now you can read what William F. Buckley reads on your drive to work yeah, and things like so that. So you're kind of uh, <clears throat> able to target a more specific right, demographic right, rather than some right. broad, uh, hoping to catch, you know, some subset of people. Exactly. That, yeah, exactly. that makes a lot of sense. So, cool. so that's, that's how we, we approached it, yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So... Um, <clears throat> What would you do differently uh, now if you were to recreate the business? What what would have changed? What do you think mm. some of your mistakes were early on that um, that you you know wish you knew now or wish you knew what you now well, know now? We we wasted before we ever recorded our first book. We had blown through forty thousand dollars investing in all this fancy reel to reel recording equipment huh. that we absolutely never used. Yeah. The first 14 books that we did, we were hired we hired out a studio in talent here and they were doing stuff on reel to reel but they were doing the the guy that ran it um, who actually became a friend of mine uh, would do the splicing by hand yeah. and 
we were just racing through money. And, and we had all this equipment that we had bought, and we didn't even set it up yet because I didn't know how to use it. Sure. And then after we were quickly uh, running out of money, uh, I had the good fortune of being contacted by a lady named Wanda McCadden. And as it turns out, she had been a narrator for books on tape for oh, there you go. several years. Yeah. And I said, Wanda, thank you for contacting me. Can we have dinner? Yeah. <laughs> so I took her out to dinner, and she just told me everything about how they did it. Oh, it's amazing. And they did it on really high-end cassette decks. Yep. And so that's how we started doing it. And we, we cut our costs. I mean, what... The first book would have maybe cost, you know, $500, $700 per, uh, for, for one recorded hour. Yeah. Well, we cut it down one-seventh of that. That's amazing. Yeah. Just by kind of getting that insight that by she had. Doing, yes. That's yes. amazing. So that was just kind of uh, uh, good luck, good fortune. Yeah, fortuitous. Yeah, yeah, it was very, very fortuitous. That's amazing. So, so did you, um, before you started the company, did you kind of conduct, um, I don't know, some sort of research into how other audiobook companies do it? And, and uh, how did you kind of wrap your head around the challenge? I did. That, that's one of the, the answers I would give you is that I would do over again is I would do more research yeah. and investigative work on that because I just kind of jumped into it without yeah. that kind of research. I did research on the industry and stuff like that, but sure. not not on actually recording. So we, we blew that money. Yeah. Uh, I, w I would definitely caution against that if I did it again. Um, but there were probably a, a number of things that that we did wrong. Uh, but, you know, it, what was I going to say? I, I, I mean, that part of that, um, part of sort of the learning process in building anything is some, some aspect of failure to some extent or, or making mistakes. So it, it makes sense that that's uh, yeah. going to be an aspect of um, of just starting a business because right. you can't know everything. Right, exactly. <clears throat> Another thing that, that would have been great, uh, but it would have gone completely against my philosophy. Mm -hmm. My philosophy has always been stay out of debt. Yep. Because if you, you're going to get yourself to the point where you're going to be beholden to others and all that. Absolutely. If you go into debt. But if we had... The, the plus side of having gone, had we gone into debt, is that we could have grabbed rights to more books that were available back then that certainly aren't available now. Yeah, and that were probably a lot cheaper to acquire rights back yeah, then. Yeah, yeah. And we yeah. could, I mean, the, the ones that we still make a living on are yeah. like the book 1984 by George Orwell. Yeah. It just sells, I don't know, we probably sold a half million dollars worth last year. So if we had, if we, back then we could have grabbed, you know, F. Scott Fitzgerald and uh, all these yeah, other classics. books that were classics that were sure. evergreens. We got some. Yeah, we, Atlas Shrugged by and The Fountainhead by Ayn Rand are certainly among those. And yeah, and there are a number of others. Conspiracy of Dunces. Yeah, but uh, but there were a lot available back then that are not available now. So I uh, I remember that Blackstone initially was named Classics on Tape. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. Yes. Oh my goodness. This is this is a really fortuitous thing that happened, and that is that 
I got that. Uh, we we were named classics on tape because I love the classics and I just, and all that. But soon found out after getting the doing the first thirty or forty books that classics didn't necessarily sell. Yeah, they sold some. Yeah, but they weren't enough to really generate a, get a, a business going. Sure. And <clears throat> do you think? Uh, sorry, to interrupt. Do you think that that was partially due to the fact that your uh, we didn't have the internet back then and your audience base was uh, more sort of niche at that point? Or do you think that that would be the case even now? Well, even now, because the problem was that the classics that we started doing, yeah. the Dickens and all that, had been done by books on tape sure. and they had been done by recorded books. So gotcha. we're recording books that have been done by two other companies. Yeah. So there's, and now there are probably... Uh, so you're, the, you're really at that point just competing... Uh, with who has the best production value? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Because they're in public domain, so there's you know not one company that has exclusive rights. Right. So um, <clears throat> I became friends, or I became friendly with Books on Tape's owner and founder Duval Hecht. Um, <clears throat> I went down and spent a day with him in Newport Beach. Did he know at this point that you had any plans or intentions he, of making oh, your own company? Yes. In fact, we we were called Classics on Tape, and and um, he was okay with that because he saw what books we were recording. Yeah. And he actually wanted to make a deal with us to record for him. In other oh. words, he would pay us a certain amount, mm -hmm. but we couldn't come to terms. So we would have gone broke yeah. with the terms that he was offering. Sure. So I had to say, Duvall, sorry, we, we can't do it. We're, yeah. just, we're not, we're too far apart. Yeah. And <clears throat> so about, oh, six months later, I recorded a couple of, non-classics uh they were mysteries by eric ambler mm -hmm. he was you know he hadn't he had died ambler had died and all that but i wouldn't i don't know if i'd call them classics sure and anyway um when duval heck saw that i got a call from him then i got a letter i, I in, in his call he said craig if you're going to record these type of books you can't call yourself classics on tape. Right. On tape belongs to us. Well, he knew well in advance that our name was classics on tape. So he didn't have a leg to stand on. Sure. But I did get started getting uh, some letters from his attorneys saying cease and desist. And my good friend Tom Allen was an attorney. He, had, he, he did mostly uh, civil law, but um, not business law, but... He, Tom took over and, and contacted his attorney and his attorney, they backed off, but they said, you know, because we said, we can't change our name. It would cost us too much. They yeah. said, how much is it going to cost you? <laughs> so I gave him a number and, and they said, what if we pay that? And I said, yeah, we could do that because what he didn't know at the time is <clears throat> we were quickly running out of money. <laughs> Yeah. We were really scampering for money. Yeah. So the fortuitous thing is that it, the name Classics on Tape was a bad yeah. name. Yeah, it's it's very uh, limiting. Tied to a format. Yeah, it's yeah. Like totally limiting. Yeah. And so the best thing in the world for us would have been to change our name. Yeah. But to get money to do it, to, enough to keep us going for another year. Yeah was absolutely fabulous. Yeah, that's so amazing. I never let Duvall know that that saved us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, that would have been a little bit of a slap in the face. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> um, wow, that's that's actually really crazy. So um, 
uh, he he basically was okay with you guys operating as long as you were in your little tight niche yes, and you yes, weren't kind yes. of yeah <clears throat> that makes sense yeah, encroaching on his territory yeah I'm surprised that he didn't imagine that that would happen but I guess it was sort of in the name uh, of your of your brand at that right point. right so yeah. then um, when you changed brand names how hard was <clears throat> it to kind of not confuse your customer base at that point uh, we we didn't have enough of a customer base to, to really worry about it. Yeah. I think we, we put out a little notification. We, we had a catalog or a mailing list of, you know, our 1,500 people or whatever that, sure. that were buying from us at the time. We sent them a letter saying what we were going to do. And nobody was opposed to it. Sure. And the, the name change was kind of interesting. We... Um, I put it out to all my friends to give me a list of what names they thought we should do. And, yeah. And the one that made sense, I don't know who came up with it. One of my friends uh, said Blackstone. I said, why? And he said, well, because your name is Black. Yeah. Black Audiobooks doesn't have a very good sound to it. Yeah. But Blackstone, and they told me he was the guy that had the great literary magazine in England back in the 1800s. Mm-hmm. So I thought, oh, that makes sense. It has a nice literary lilt to it. Yeah. But later, I found out through Malcolm Mugridge's brother, who I became friends with um, before Malcolm died, um, Jack told me, Craig, because I, I told him the story. He asked, yeah. he asked about that. I said, oh, it's after your literary magazine here in London. Yeah. And he said, oh, Craig, that wasn't. That that was Blackwell's, not Blackstone. <laughs> Blackstone was the great legal mind. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. There's just a little bit of a confusion there. Yeah, yeah. That's so amazing. we were accidentally named Blackstone, That's you funny. might say. Well, hey, it, it stuck in it, and it, it has works. a good ring it to works. it. Yeah. yeah. I, maybe it's a good thing that it didn't uh, overlap with, with anyone else, yeah. too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, okay, switching gears a little bit. Um so you you did go and get your MBA um, in school. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was during your time at uh, House of Almonds. House of Almonds. What do you think you uh, learned that was useful during that time for your business career? And what do you think? Um, do you think overall it was worth uh, it if you if you if you were to advise other people uh, to go to school or not? Yeah, I think. Broadly speaking, it was it, it was good, but sure. um, I don't think it was absolutely necessary. Right. Uh, <clears throat> I it helps. I think education is just so good in helping you to understand what's out there. Yeah, and, absolutely. And just have more confidence and all that. So yeah. So it was good for those reasons. But I, I I've always been a little bit of a rebel, and I think I kind of rebelled against going the step-by-step MBA route as far as the way they would teach you to to approach everything. Sure. But um, but that doesn't mean that I, I, I really do value, heavily value what I learned, all the things I learned. Do you, do you think it helped more on the um, sort of initial phase, like all the sort of um, legal aspects and things like that, or more maybe on the managerial phase uh, down the road when you had people underneath you or, or both? I think uh, on the managerial phase for me. Okay. I mean, it, certainly I, I don't, I, 
what little I knew about the legal world, yeah, I probably learned in school too. Yeah, but um, yeah, the classes that I had at Pepperdine for were heavily designed around uh, meetings in co- uh, collaboration. Sure, um, that was their kind of their approach, and so I think it helped me to understand people. Yeah. Um, how to motivate people. Yeah. And, uh, well, let's, let's go down that path then. Yeah. What, what do you think, um, any sort of specific things that you remember from that in terms of like how to, how to motivate and how to, uh, inspire your, um, your employees? Yeah. I think, uh, you know, I setting the example yeah. for one thing, you know, I, I was working really hard and some of my employees throughout the years have worked hard. Yeah. Um, but, also giving them good general direction, yeah. but a lot of rope. Yeah. You know, I I want you to bring me some ideas. Yeah. Let's talk about those. Yeah. And have them feel very much a part of it. It's uh Yeah. It, like ownership of right, what they're right. working on. Rather than being the tyrannical dictatorial type, I yeah. wanted to That makes sense, I yeah. think. Um, yeah. So uh how far along in the process when you started the company um, did you start hiring on people and huh. how many people did you hire on and yeah all that yeah. that kind of stuff well at first we had as I will go back and say we just ran through money so fast yeah and we needed money to to establish a product line because sure. it, with, with starting up an audio book company you don't have anything to sell yeah until you have a product line and we right. didn't have anything so we had to to do enough books to get a catalog together. Yeah. And so the first year, it was mostly myself, yep. just I alone. And, and your mom did some proofreading and stuff like that, but I did all the mastering of the tapes. I did. It's wild. So it, at that point, where did you acquire all the knowledge to get to the point where you knew like what to do on your own at least? Well, I mean, I had experience in direct mail marketing okay so that at house of almonds i was in charge of of marketing and and operations and so i we had a a catalog business at house of almonds that did 40 million dollars a year oh wow so it was pretty big and so that's that's a good uh uh learning experience yes in addition to your uh business school right right absolutely but as far as the production, I learned what I learned from Wanda, mm-hmm. you know, how to do that. Yeah. And, um, but I didn't have money to hire anybody for about a year. Okay. And then I had the good fortune of having my sister, mm-hmm. Debbie, um, moved up. She and her son and daughter moved up. I think Josh at the time was 12. Wow. And they moved up here and she became my first employee and she was super reliable. Yeah. I mean, so... No longer did I have to not only make the books, but also duplicate t- uh, cassettes and yeah. send, put them in boxes and mail Gosh. them off and all that. She she handled that. Did you have enough orders uh, before she joined the team that that the like production side of it was pretty overwhelming? Uh, no. Okay. We didn't. I mean, a, what would be a good day for us in sales back yeah. then? Maybe three or four hundred dollars you know yeah and, and and it was all via telephone or how, how did people telephone order? and mail order okay. i mean we we get the mail and the mail i remember on mondays were, were was our best day for mail because yeah. it had accumulated over the weekend sure 
and we'd get a pretty good slew of orders, written orders, and then the t- telephones would ring though. And what is a written order? Would it? <laughs> well, it, it, we had little order forms at the bottom of our ads. Okay. Saying you know, oh, gotcha. Marked how many you wanted and how many, and then you'd write like the title of the book, title that you of the book, okay. and then the amount and all that. That's so. pretty abstract from this. Yeah, era. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I. Uh, you know, we used to celebrate weeks where we did over $10,000. So that was probably, that happened during the second year, I'm sure, when okay. we started having those kind of weeks. So. Yeah. And then and then at that point, you can you could have grabbed a couple more people. Well, yeah, we did. Mm-hmm. We did. We, we started grabbing some people. And you were still building this out of your house. Out of my house, out of our house. Yeah. Uh, I think I worked over 100 hours a week for the first three years for sure. Wild. And then I might have tapered down to 90 or 80 after that for a while. Did you ever have a sense of burnout during that time? You know, I was always excited about it because the orders kept coming in and I could see that the business was slowly ramping up. And that was enough motivation to keep me going. Yeah. Um, Did Did it ever feel, did you ever think far enough ahead that like, is this going to be my life for, you know, however long? No. Yeah. No, because I, I I did have enough sense to see that if it kept building, yeah. you know, at some point in time, you can I'm going to be able this. to back off on this. Sure. But, but I do have regrets. I okay. do have regrets because I feel like I was a little out of balance mm. back then. Here we were starting the family yeah. at that time. Addie was born in 1987 right as we were putting the business together mm-hmm. but you came along in 1991 yep. and those years i was still working so many hours yeah that i wish if i could do it over again i would would figure out a way to reprioritize that and do you think myself. do you think uh under those circumstances with your financial constraints and stuff it would have even been possible though well, realistically uh, humanly, no, <laughs> but because of my faith, I would say it, I've I've never experienced where you don't trust the Lord and yeah. it, it doesn't work. So yeah. I'm sure had I trusted, something would have happened. Yeah. You know, it would have worked. Yeah, you could have found a way. But it didn't seem like it at the time. It seemed just so easy to think, oh, I've got to do this in order to be successful. Do you think there was um, a point in time where... Uh, do, like initially, do you feel like you um, felt the sense of like you had to be uh, sort of in control to make sure that everything goes right? And was there like a sense ever of like sort of letting go of that control? And like, how, how did that come about? So that's one thing that I have been maybe gifted with is mm-hmm. that is uh, probably because I've so admired Ronald Reagan's way of managing his the white house years Mm -hmm. that i did learn and had that innate sense that if you find a good person you you got to trust them yeah and i was so as i got people hired Mm -hmm. like my sister i gave her full trust in the areas that she needed to have and she never let me down that's amazing and the same thing goes today with josh you know and all you guys are just knocking them dead so that's awesome yeah yeah so when you hired uh your first sort of people that aren't related to you and in the family how did you sort of judge that aspect of them that that this is someone you can trust this is someone that like can absolutely take over this responsibility that's a good point too 
Uh, <clears throat> good question, I should, should say. Um, that's... I, I could see that, and, and I'm, this is not to pat myself on the back, but mm-hmm. I think the people that I hired liked me somehow. Yeah. And because of that, I mean, there are people we had in the, in the old days that wouldn't work at all well with the new days, with right. what, where we are now. Right. But because we were small and they could see that, you know, we were doing pouring our hearts out to do it. Yeah. They were working hard. Yeah. You remember Penny? Or yeah, yeah, she was she was very valuable. Yeah, and uh, some others. Yeah. So I, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, you just you kind of get a sense for it when when you're in yeah. the yeah. room with them, and you right? Kind of, and then Allison Wright, yeah, and Colleen yeah. were fabulous. Yeah, you know? totally. uh, And then we had them for many many years. I yeah, mean, they stayed for that's awesome. Long long, long time. Yeah, they were great. Almost becomes a little bit of a family yeah, situation. Yeah. That's really cool. great. So um so if you were to give someone advice who is uh trying to start their own business or considering that, uh what advice would you give them? And um yeah, what what do you think what would you almost like tell yourself if you were um, you know, now but you were 20 or 30. Or yeah, whatever. well, I think that a couple of the things I did were things I would advise others to do. And yeah. that is, boy, unless you want to have a possible problem with yeah. the others, uh, don't go into debt. Yep. Don't go into debt if you can yep. avoid it. But, you know, I, I understand that there are a lot of businesses that where you can't get around that. What about uh, equity, giving up equity? How do you feel about that? Yeah, I think that that could work if, as long as you maintain control, yeah. controlling interest. Yeah. Um, could. Yeah. Uh, well, or what about like uh, 50-50 partners? How, how do you think that? Well, that, that my grandfather always advised me against that because yeah. he said, Craig, you're, you'll have times when you're going to disagree and that could just blow up yeah you know and can destroy talk, business for heard, sure. i've heard a lot of stories about things like that where yeah. destroys friendships or relationships and sure. businesses um but i'm sure that there are a lot of stories on the other on the plus side too that where it works yeah but I, so that's one thing is i like that we did, have not had to take on any debt yeah uh i like that we chose the niche path mm-hmm. uh so if you can find a Good product line. I, I, I'm so glad we didn't do the cinnamon rolls. I'm so glad <laughs> yeah. we didn't do the yeah. the other store. Kind of a it, fad that died out pretty quick. Yeah, the yeah. Hawaii store would have been one store. It might have still been around, but it would have been kind yep. of a passe type business. Yeah. But books, you know, what what's a product yeah. line like that? Knowledge, books, anything like that. It's, it's not going to go away. There's always going to be a demand. Yeah, so totally. Love that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so kind of find a, a market that um that has long-term longevity yes. and yeah that's not a fad something yeah. that's you know and, and we found something that was a trend you mm-hmm. know it was a trend that i recognized mm-hmm. um there's traffic yeah. all over the world it's not getting any better yeah. it's only getting worse yep. and this is a this is a great traffic fighter you yeah know? it really is so uh what about um kind of conjuring up the motivation like what do you think that there was something specific that 
or do you think it was kind of an innate uh, facet of your personality that allowed you to have the motivation to actually continue through, you know, the, the three or four really hard years yeah, of the company? Yeah. I think it, my main motivation was my competitive nature. Yeah. Probably from baseball. Yeah. That makes you know, sense. And I, I, the one thing that I learned was it feels good to win and I hate to lose. Yeah. Yep. And so just the thought of losing, yeah. of failing was so strong yeah. that, you know, I probably would have killed myself if I had to. Yeah. Not, I mean, in, not purposely, but, sure. but by overworking. Yeah. Right. To, to make it work. So. And then what about like the initial sort of mental battle to get, uh, to, to, um, take that first step to start the business? What, like, what was that like? And, and how do you think you, um, got to that mental state where you can, you took that huge leaping off point, that risk? Yeah, we, we, we were definitely going to, I was definitely planning on doing an audio book business back in, in the 19 early part of 1987 but i was thinking more like three four years down the road yeah well then come august of 1987 i get, uh, my boss comes into my office and says craig our company is selling to castle and cook oh. on january 1st we will become part of castle and cook yeah and i thought okay that, that could be a good breakoff point. Yeah. And then on January 1st comes, and they have a big, giant gathering in the auditorium of the uh, main facility there yeah. at Tenneco. And, and the new boss gets up and says, okay, if everybody's uh, not, if anybody here is not fully devoted to this new ownership, you come to my office and we will give you the standard Tenneco severance. <laughs> and I heard the word severance yeah. and he made the offer. And I thought, oh my goodness, I can not only make the change now, I can get something out of this. Yeah, yeah. Some some capital. Yeah, to yeah. So they, I went into his office and it surprised him. Mm. And he said, Craig, we've got a, a new, we've got a job for you in mm. this new company. Mm. You know, we want you to convert... Um, these House of Almond stores into Dole, Dole stores because that was their Gosh. big brand that they had, Dole, yeah. Dole Pineapple and all that. And I said, thanks for the offer, but I want the severance. Mm -hmm. So they gave me the severance, and that was a good chunk of money that we really needed. Yeah. And, uh, you know, a week timing. later, my office was cleaned out, and we were, we were done. <laughs> and and uh, I, I vaguely remember you saying back... Uh, a long time ago, not in this podcast, but um, that you did pitch the idea of Blackstone to yeah. that company at that at that point, right? Well, I, I had I, I had actually taken a ride in our company jet. We used to fly it around a little bit yeah. uh, for meetings. Whenever our president wanted to see a shopping mall location that I had found, mm. uh, we would take the jet. Mm -hmm. And so we were flying back to Buffalo, New York. Mm -hmm. But we had, because of weather conditions, we had to stop in Cleveland. I remember that. Mm -hmm. Well, anyway, I don't know why I'm even telling you that. But <laughs> in the air, uh, we were drinking champagne. Mm -hmm. And um, I decided to pitch the idea of Tenneco going into the audiobook business oh, gosh. to our president. Yeah. I said, hey, 
I've got this great idea. These things are really going to take off. I'm yeah. sure of it because I love them. Yeah. And so I told him uh, the idea, and he said, Craig, Tenneco may be a conglomerate, but they're not a publisher. Mm. They're not going to do a p- publishing. Yeah. And... Um, and did this guy have the power to make it if if uh, if he actually loved the idea? For well, he reason? certainly could have p- pitched. He was the president of Tenneco West, okay. which was owned by uh, Tenneco Inc. in Houston, okay. and he was close with the CEO of the company. Yeah, so so he would have been the one to kind of pitch it. He to would have the pitched CEO. it, but gotcha. he's he stepped in and said, "No, we're not going to do this." Yeah. So. Well, hey, it, but, but he and he said, "Craig, if you." Think it's such a great idea. Do it yourself. Kind yeah. of thinking I'd never do it. Yeah. Well, hey, yeah. careful what you say. Yeah. So about <laughs> eight months later, I I left. So that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Wild. So you never know. But um, what would you say are um books or people or um yeah books or people that you've found inspiring that maybe were specifically inspiring for the business. Over the years, well, could be personal uh, relationships, or it could be famous people. Uh, yeah, books. yeah. I the thing that really got me into books mm-hmm. was reading the rise of Theodore Roosevelt by mm-hmm. Edmund Morris, mm-hmm. won the Pulitzer Prize. Such a good book, and I mean, Theodore Roosevelt is was such a bigger than life character. Yeah, in so many ways. Um, just brave as can be and you know he read a book a day he, he, he would wait for his carriage and be reading a book under the street lamp you know and he would he tackle Tammany Hall these big organs this huge organization yeah kind of like draining the swamp you know yeah, yeah. Uh, and so anyway he became a, a huge hero for me and but the book itself mm-hmm. really got me interested in reading other biographies so mm-hmm. i read uh, william f uh, william manchester's three volume history or biography of winston churchill yeah churchill same way you know yeah. bigger than life so colorful yeah i mean these guys are teddy roosevelt's swimming in the potomac <laughs> naked every day <laughs> and crazy. then winston churchill's you know, doing somersaults in his bathtub. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why <laughs> I'm thinking of the water aspect yeah. of these guys, but, or, or Teddy Roosevelt's wrestling sumo wrestlers in the White House library. They're just <laughs> colorful as can be, but they're yeah. also so virile and, yeah, and unafraid. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Absolutely. And they did so many great things. So those are a couple great biographies. Mm-hmm. Um, we ended up recording those, by the way. Excellent. Uh, <clears throat> Although we lost the rights to the Roosevelt one, but we had it for several years. Mm-hmm. And then as far as for the business, I think Free to Choose, going back to that, Free yeah. to Choose was really inspirational. We recorded that book. What would you say in particular um, about Milton Friedman's um, uh, philosophy and all that that, that kind of stood out as an uh, inspiration to you? Well, it's just seeing how the free market works, yeah. you know, and, and being convinced that government their role and things should they should have a role but it should be extremely limited tamped down yeah and um yeah so i think it's it was mainly that just it just kind of gave me a political worldview sure yeah i could start with it so i guess that's why i'm today i'm if you classified 
where I am on the political spectrum, it would probably be uh, leaning heavily towards libertarian. Yeah, you know, totally. So yeah, well, maybe it, maybe it takes a little bit of that to uh, believe enough in the market to to actually start a business. And, yeah, and think yeah. that it's going to be right. successful because the government's not going to get in your way. Yeah, well, they, they try to. They try to. <laughs> yeah, they taxes, try to. taxes don't Yeah, help, yeah. Definitely. They sure do. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Um, let's see if I missed any of my questions. Um, if you were to uh, start Blackstone in 2022, uh like in all the you know things that have changed since uh the 80s when it first was started what do you think you would do differently um and and how would you even approach the business nowadays so what are you asking if if blackson didn't exist uh right now and and you're back in your 30s you have your okay I'm, 30s I'm, energy I'm 30s now yeah yeah but but the internet is in existence yep, the internet is in, in existence oh, all the same market conditions yes, exist. yeah yes, what would you do yes and or do you think it's even realistic to uh is there a, a corner of the market that could even be exploited boy yeah i'd have to think about where what aspect of the market to go after because mm -hmm. most of the Areas the genres of books are are pretty well taken. Yeah. Um, so we would probably I'd probably have to start off more like we are doing going now yeah. as a full on publisher. publisher where right. we can get rights to everything. Yeah. And that would would be really difficult because you know that all that printing press equipment that we have is yeah. very very expensive. Yeah. Uh, and if you don't have that, you don't do your own printing. Yeah. Then You've got to commit to prints runs of ten thousand or so at a time, and that takes up lots of inventory space. Yeah, and it's a money. It becomes so a it's really, really tough. It'd be really hard yeah. to do it now. Yeah. So I, I probably would start off as an audio company as much as possible, mm -hmm. and uh, only do digital, maybe. Yeah, only do digital probably, mm -hmm. and um, maybe go after a certain niche. Here's what I found. Oh, I'm sorry about that. That was my watch talking. Yeah. It talks out of turn. <laughs> sorry about that. Uh, probably go after a niche yeah. of some sort. Yeah, like um, uh, kind of a genre that you... Right, Almost right. like how Blackson actually started. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. I helped the, the fellows at Christian Audio get started. Yeah. They were going after a niche and... And we di didn't really have, we had some stuff in that area, but we didn't have enough. Yeah. And they were willing to go full speed. So I g told them, I, I gave them the, I paid back, paid forward the Wanda yeah. dinner with them. Yep. That gave makes them sense. all that information. Um, how, especially back in the day, did you assess the um, value of particular books and, and how, potentially profitable or not profitable they would be and or was that just kind of like um some sort of internal sense you had or well, it was we, i didn't have access to any of the data that we now have yeah I mean, now we're pulling data from all what you call those spiders are out there pulling <laughs> yeah. data yeah. from all the crawling the cra internet yeah crawling the internet and getting the sales data yeah so we do it on a much in a much more intelligent way than i did yeah but my thing was all about okay is this a book that i think is going to have legs i do i think this book is going to be still have some sales gusto mm. 10 years from now mm -hmm. 20 years from now yeah and those are the books that i went for and, and as it turns out that was a really smart thing to do 
That makes sense. Yeah. So yeah. that's the reason we have so many of those. Uh, Green, uh, evergreens. Evergreens, yeah. Yes. That's what we call them. Yes. Yeah. Uh, that makes sense. Cool. So I wish we had, we had more, though, but, you know, that's just greed. Yeah. <laughs> well, oh, will you tell the um, the story of how we uh, passed up, um, what, what was the book? Jurassic um, Park. Jurassic Park, oh, yeah. Oh, gosh, that's, Mama that's just a funny one. <laughs> uh, yeah, back in the beginning, you know, I... Jurassic Park came out as a book, and it was a bestseller. And for some reason, recorded books didn't have it in their catalog, and books on tape didn't have it in theirs. And so I contacted Knopf. I think they were the publisher. And it became, I found that it was available yeah. for a bid. And back then, you know, books, gosh, I, I don't think I paid more than $250 advance on anything. <laughs> so who knows? We might have been able to get that for $1,000 because it was a, a New York Times bestseller yeah. instantly. But um, <clears throat> so they said, yeah, it's available. Do you want to make a bid? And <laughs> I said, well, let me get back to you on that. <laughs> and I went out and grabbed a copy of it and brought it home. And Michelle, your mom, read it mm-hmm. and said, Craig, Craig, you don't want to do this. This is just... <laughs> Pulp Fiction, you know, it's not a classic because, we, of course, we were classics on tape at yeah. the time, and uh, so we, she convinced me to pass on it. <laughs> Probably had we gotten that right, right to that, we would have, the whole course of our history would have changed. So that was. It's almost like a I, Harry Potter level book. Yeah, I like to tease her on that one. Yeah. Um, did we ever have the option to acquire Harry Potter, or did you not even know I about had it? never even heard of it. My yeah. friend Tim Ditlow at Listening Library grabbed it yep. and did it, and the success of Volume 1 of Harry Potter was enough to get Random House interested in buying his company. That's wild. Yeah, so yeah, he probably regrets, has great regrets selling his company because had he known that she was going to write all these other Harry Potter books. Yeah, I mean, wow. That, <laughs> it's got to have been hundreds of millions of dollars. I think, yeah, by far that's the hottest selling audiobook in the history of publishing. That's wild. Yeah. And right behind it probably is Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Um, which we almost got. Yep. I really wanted that one. And <laughs> that would have been amazing. But I, I got to the agent for the estate and they told me oh you're a week late is mm-hmm. we just sold it so they <laughs> sold to record a books a week earlier so shoot yeah <laughs> that's that, a that's a rough one that was that might have even been well that would have been up there with harry potter yeah sure. especially after the movies came out yeah 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 um what about the uh time period where blackstone was acquired what what did you learn from that um, situation? So Blackstone, for clarity, is not currently acquired by anyone, but there was a whole fiasco that happened, uh, yes. what, like 10 years ago? Yes, 10 years ago. That's wild. 10 years ago. 10 years ago, um, I was approached by Audio Go. They mm-hmm. were, they they had BBC, they were, were what BBC Audio became yeah. in London. And they were owned by an investment group out of London. And so we sold, uh, we, we talk, started talking to them. And I said, like what I tell everybody, no, we're not for sale. Yeah. 
And they said, well, you got to be for sale at some price. I said, well, yeah, if you want to offer me something ridiculous, something yeah. that doesn't make sense at all, yeah. I'll, I'll listen to you. So they came out to Ashland. We sat around our conference table, and they started. They left saying, we're going to come up with that ridiculous number. Yeah. And so anyway, long story short, we met with them in New York, and after two days of meetings... <clears throat> We agreed to sell our company, but fortunately, we held on to 5% of it. 5% is not a lot. Yeah. That was the smart thing we did. The dumb thing that we did was we agreed to let them uh, give us, uh, we, we took back paper on it. So yeah, it was words, like a leveraged buyout. Yeah, so yeah. they gave us half in cash right? and half it was on a loan. It yeah. was at a ten percent interest. So I thought, wow, that ten percent interest we could just live comfortably on forever. Yeah. Um, but little did I know what was going to happen. <laughs> so they they took it over, and like eight months down the road, maybe six months down the road, Josh came to me and said, "Craig, there's some there's some weird things happening." Uh, and I was on the board of directors also. That was part of what I got. Yeah. And the board met in London, and we found that we were losing money. Yeah. And, well, we weren't, on paper, we were making money. Yeah. But they were asking, the company was asking for the investors to put money in, into the company because they had no cash. Huh. And so that was very suspicious. We all thought, yeah. what, how, is this, how does that compute? Yeah. And so we... The board hired an investigative auditor yeah. to look into it, and then we we discovered that the uh, CEO of the company and the CFO were in cahoots. They they uh, they were making up false orders. Oh man, and that's wild. The company was going under. We had we owed so much money to lots of publishers and. Uh, we were we were within days of, of having to file chapter eleven. That's crazy. Yeah, and um, tell briefly maybe the the story of how we uh, undid that. Yeah, um, one of the investors that I'm still still friends with, uh, named Jonathan, um, helped me. He said he had he used to work in the finance industry for. Um, I think the Royal Bank of Scotland. And the Royal Bank of Scotland is the bank that these guys borrowed so much money from to mm -hmm. acquire the business. Sure. And they, so they, it, Jonathan knew how it works. And he says, if you, you're the only one that they would be willing to listen to to buy the business back. If you want to go that course, I'll help you. I'll help coach you. That's so amazing. he did. He helped coach me and, uh, but the, it was very worrisome for a while because the Royal Bank of Scotland was in such a sour mood from the, hearing this news yeah. that they didn't want to return any phone calls. Oh, jeez. <laughs> so, That's a little stressful. So we had some some sleepless nights. I had some sleepless nights. Yeah. And uh, finally they they called, and we worked out a deal to purchase it back. Thank goodness for that. Yeah. yeah. So if you were to, uh, I don't know, if you were uh, coaching another person that had a business that was uh, thinking about selling, what would you say to them? And, and 
what would you what advice would you give it with with that uh, in in the background? Well, f- first of all, I would have them think it through better than I did because even had the deal been made and gone good, yeah, I really missed it. Yeah, I mean, like after a few months, I was just I wasn't in the game. I was attending a quarterly board meeting, and that's about it. Yeah. Uh, so think through: Do you really? want to just do nothing at home yeah. or you know do you have enough other interests that that yeah. are going to carry you through Absolutely. and then secondly if you're going to sell make sure that the terms are are weighted a little bit differently yeah i mean if if they wanted to take uh you know 10 percent paper that's one thing mm-hmm. but half paper yeah that's risky. That's a lot of money yeah so Absolutely. um that was that was not not very wise <laughs> Well, live and learn, and thank goodness it uh, it worked out. Oh my end. goodness! The, the 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 company. The, this is how it worked out for us. The company at the time versus today, we are now f- almost five times the size <laughs> that we were then. That's amazing. And that's been ten years. Yeah. So f- a multiplication of five in ten years is how. F- that's crazy. So it was it was a bit of a catalyst in growing the company. Uh, yeah, yeah, even we, though there was obvious We got their BBC audio. Yeah. Basically, even though it wasn't called BBC, but yeah. the, all their books that they had, yeah. we got those for the United States. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> yeah, and and at the time uh, you know, Audible sold right afterwards or right around that time they sold to amazon and amazon just started really plugging in uh, to audible and they took off and yeah the rest is history and now we have the excitement of spotify coming into the business yeah that's huge so wow looking forward to that yeah that's awesome so i'm so happy uh so What was the motivation to move to Southern Oregon? Uh, since this podcast is called uh, Rogue Creators, I figure oh, we should yes. bring in a little bit of yes, Rogue Valley yes. lore and uh, reason for, for moving here. Absolutely. Well, when we made the decision to, to uh, start the business and start our family, we wanted to move out of L.A. Mm-hmm. Uh, because you know one of the reasons was we needed the money from our house down there. So yeah. we had a nice house and a nice area. And we sold that for a good price and used a lot of that money as our startup. Uh, real estate up he- here in Oregon is a lot, lot less. But we took a trip. Michelle and I took a trip all the way up to the tip of, of Washington. Oh, wow. And Along the coast or uh, I-5? or I- I-5 and to the coast. Okay. We, we saw a lot, of, a lot of territory. That's awesome. And we, we did like Bainbridge Island up in... Washington, but you know the hassle of getting on ferries all the time and all that is, could be a tough place to start a business. Yeah, too. <laughs> yeah. So in in retrospect, I'm glad we we overlooked the charm of Bainbridge Island. Yeah. But um, when we went through Ashland, it was a magical day, and I think it was in November, mm. and we had our little. I shouldn't say a little. We had our large video camera with us oh, back yeah. then. You know, you had one that's on your shoulder, like yep. like you're a professional cinematographer. Yeah. Um, and we took videos of our whole trip. Oh, that's cool. But videotaping downtown Ashland, you know, in November with the lights and the snow coming down and all yeah. that was really magical. Yeah. We took it back to L.A. 
And with my mom and dad, we had dinner with them on Thanksgiving, and we showed them that video. Yep. And when they saw Ashland on the videotape, they said, oh, my goodness, if you guys move there, <laughs> we'll come with you. So we said, okay, that's it. Excellent. Just made up our mind. Yeah. So how long were you guys in Ashland when you first scouted it out? Uh, I think when we on that trip, we were only here for a few nights, maybe four or five nights. That's that's a quick trip to yeah, make yeah. such a big decision. Yeah, we, but we were we had been up all over other places, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so then we we moved up here and we lived in Ashland for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, but we found that we, we couldn't. The real estate in Ashland even then was higher than in Medford, and yep. we need just knew we needed space for the business. Yeah, and we needed an inexpensive house and we found the perfect place in Medford and, yeah. and it all worked out. And eventually, you know, seven, eight years later, we build our first building. Yeah. So <clears throat> why, uh, why did you build the building in Ashland rather than Medford? Cause you're... Ashland was the town that had most of our narrators. We, we drew from the Shakespeare theater Yeah. and Ashland was a bookie town. Yeah. You know, it was, it's part of the culture. It's part of the culture. Yeah. yeah. So totally. we, we felt like Ashland was better suited for what we were doing. Yeah. That makes sense. And potentially uh, easier to draw more employees from that. Yeah. And we, the employees that we got from Ashland, boy, I mean, just the, the level, yeah. you know, people sacrifice a lot to live in Ashland yep. and there's a lot of very qualified people. Yep. No, it's uh, absolutely true. Who live there. Yep. Well, so, for good reason. It's, yeah. it's a pretty lovely place. Oh, it's wonderful. And yeah. It's, yeah. Yeah. It seduces a lot of visitors from all over. Authors are, are always happy to come here now. Yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, it's <laughs> it's hard to resist the charm. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So we're happy with that decision. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think that uh, pretty much hits all the questions I had for you. Well, thank you so much. Yeah. I'm Thanks for totally being... honored. I I, to... I feel like this is the uh, the best possible first guest. Oh, uh, being thank my dad. you. Thank you. Yeah. Appreciate I loved it. that. It was well, great. I wish you the best. This is this is great. You've got a wonderful little setup here. Thank you very so, much. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Until next time. Okay, until next time. Take care.